Thanks so much, everybody. I really appreciate this chance to share some thoughts in our series on the, the good news. So uh, today is actually going to be, in a lot of ways, a ground-clearing exercise. We'll be talking about how the good news is not about you. Uh, in that vein, I think uh, Spark is a great place to have a discussion like this, because later on in the series, we'll be doing a lesson on how the good news is not good advice, and about how the gospel does or doesn't relate to a lot of you know, what we call um, advice or self-help, things like that. I mean, also for uh, longer-term Sparkers, you will remember a series that we did a, a while ago um, called, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. And uh, the significance of that was there are so many words in our language and in Bible language that uh, a lot of us use, Christians and non-Christians, and we think that we have a really good idea of what that means either in the Bible or what it means when other people use that word. And then you realize that there's a lot of clutter that you have to clear out, a lot of misconceptions about what a word means before you can actually get to talking about what that word actually should mean and why it matters. And so in that way, um, the good news is subject to the same kinds of problems and challenges. Uh, a lot of times when, um, when you think about what the good news means, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you probably have some kind of idea on what you think it means, what you think most people think they mean when they say it. A lot of times I think that, uh, especially in, in uh, a lot of evangelical circles, the way you think about good news is that it's uh, either the plan of salvation, like what you need to do to be saved, or it's the plan of salvation from God's perspective, what God did to save you. But either way, you notice there's a theme that runs across it. It's all about you. It's about what, what, happened, what happens to you. What does the gospel mean to you, or what does it mean for you? And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, you can see how, given the cultural context that we speak about the gospel in, in, in American Christianity in the 20th and 21st century, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the ways we talk about the gospel is driven by, like, a consumer-driven context. We're an individualistic culture. A lot of times when we hear new ideas and people talk about the implications that it could have, one of the first questions we ask is, what's in it for me? What does this do for me? What'll it, how will it affect my life. And so it's not surprising, given that approach, that a lot of ways that most of us are familiar with articulating the gospel is like the Romans road. So some of you may be familiar with this, this walk on the Romans road. Some of you may be saying, I've, I've been down that road before. I, I don't want to anymore. And, um, and others of you, may, maybe you're not even familiar with it. Maybe, maybe the gospel hasn't been articulated to you this way. Although for a lot of us, I imagine it's really common. And so what this approach does is it was super popular, uh, especially a, a few decades ago, where um, it was part of a, an evangelism tool that Christians could use, where they could quickly, just by using a few verses all within the book of Romans explain to somebody what the good news is. And so the good news would go like this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then lastly, therefore, if we have been justified through faith, we have been, we're at peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the way that this goes is it has set up a problem. The problem is that you're a sinner. The, the solution is that God uh, gave you Jesus 
um, to, for you to avoid the plight of death. That was, that was what you deserved. And then the final articulation is, what do you benefit from, from uh, um, receiving the gospel in this way? Now, this approach works if you're operating from the premise that the central question about the gospel and the central question driving the biblical story is something like, how can I, a sinner, find a gracious God. That was articulated by Martin Luther several centuries ago. And a lot of us who operate in Protestant Western circles have inherited that approach. In other words, the main thing the Bible is trying to answer for you is given that God is perfect and you're not, how can you find yourself in his presence? And usually the answer to that goes something like, well, God is perfectly holy and he is perfectly just. He has to punish sin. If you sin, you are deserving of punishment from him on an eternal scale. But God sent his son Jesus out of love for you. And so Jesus took the punishment that you deserved so that you wouldn't have to experience that, that death. And therefore, now you can uh, have eternal life because Jesus took that death for you. So in, in this way, thinking about the central question of the Bible and the central answer of the Bible in this way, it actually raises several questions. One, uh, one set of questions has to do with the way I just answered that question on its own. Is that fair or just for somebody else to take the punishment for you? Is that what the Bible is trying to say when it talks about Jesus standing in for our place? What does it mean for God to pour out his wrath on Jesus instead of us? Is that how God's wrath works? All sorts of questions, very good ones, come up that make, make you wonder if that actually is what the Bible is trying to tell you as a story of what it's all about. But there's another set of problems when you think of the gospel this way. Um, if you look up at what I put on the Romans road, this is, for a lot of people, a fully self-contained way of explaining the gospel. But I think there are several parts of that presentation that are missing that I think are important to actually talking about the gospel. So for example, what about Jesus's resurrection? Is that mentioned at all in the Romans road that, that I just shared? You know, if you ask Jesus if coming back from the dead was an important part of the overall story, I think he would say, yeah, it was. I had a, a friend who was, uh, who was a non-Christian, was on, a, on an airplane once. And uh, airplanes, of course, lend themselves to many opportunities to share the gospel. And so, uh, so he had a, he had a, there's a man who's a Christian who was uh, riding next to him on the flight. And they started talking about religion. And um, the, the, the man who was with my friend basically shared the gospel with him in more or less Romans Road language. Obviously, he didn't use it you know, like literally that way, but it's basically talking about it that way. And my friend, uh, who's not a Christian, he, he listened very carefully, and he, he actually said, he said that, I think a lot of what you're saying is, is really compelling. I'm curious, though, how does Jesus's resurrection fit into uh, your presentation of the gospel? He knew to say that because he's my friend, and we've talked about this before. And so, you know, what's, what was interesting is that, so the, the man who was, who was sharing what he thought was the gospel with him, um, he, he said a couple things. He actually did say that that was the first time a non-Christian had ever asked him that question when he was uh, sharing the gospel. He, he kind of offered an answer. The gist of it was basically that the resurrection proves that God was right or that Jesus was right about all of the things that he was saying in the past. And that is an answer that I've heard before. For a lot of times, that is, that's basically how the resurrection fits into this otherwise fully self-contained version of the gospel. And in that sense, the resurrection kind of becomes an afterthought 
of the story of Jesus. But we, of course, know that for Jesus and the early followers who told his story, that absolutely was not the case. The resurrection was central to understanding what the Jesus movement was about. Those of you who are familiar with messianic movements in the couple centuries before and after Jesus know Jesus was not alone in the sense that he showed up claiming to be what Israel had been longing for all along as the anointed one who was going to restore Israel. There were many people claiming to be the Messiah. There are many ways in which Jesus is different from all of them, but the one way that seemed to gain traction very quickly was all of the other failed messiahs died and stayed dead, and Jesus didn't. And that is the early message that the followers of Jesus brought forward was that, wait a second, everything I thought about Jesus, turns out it was wrong because he came back from the dead. Now I have to look at everything he said and did in a whole new light, and I can't look at the world the same way. That's how they were thinking about the, the resurrection when, uh, when they shared the gospel with others. Towards uh, the, the end of Paul's life, uh, in, uh, in Paul's circles, this is how people like him talked about the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. That is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. For Paul, he could reduce it to that important part if he had to. It would involve the resurrection. Now, there's another question that comes up that's missing in that, that Romans Road presentation. What about Jesus' life? So the beginning of our Gospels actually start this way. So the the Gospel of Mark starts, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a reason that we call those first four books of the New Testament canon Gospels. They are proclamations about the good news. And you would think if the Romans wrote or or a you-centric approach were accurate to sharing the gospel, how come so much of these gospels talks about Jesus's life if what really matters is his death? Because that's several chapters uh, for each gospel that are brought up. We could have just, you know, had him born because then we could still have Christmas, which is fun. And then you go straight to his death, which is what we get out of it. We get forgiveness of sins. And then maybe you'd include resurrection because it proves that Jesus was right or something like that. But that's not how the gospels go, is it? In fact, they spend a, a lot of time basically telling you who Jesus is and what he was about and what he cared about and what he did. And not just that he was there to save people from their sins or offer all humanity forgiveness of sins. So when they say they're proclaiming the good news, it has to involve his life in some meaningful way. I think a lot of times when we think about the, you know, the Romans road in, uh, in, in that context, we think like, what, what is the point of Jesus's life? Why do the gospels record all of those things if what seems to matter is his death? And people will come up with things like, well, the, the whole point of the record of Jesus' life is to just show, uh, is to offer him up as a great moral example. That's why. He did good things, and we all should do those good things too. Another way that, that it's approached is it's just it's to show just how great he actually was and how you can never be as great as he is, so cast yourself upon the confidence of what he's done for you. Another way it's approached is, well, th- those are things just to show that he was divine because, of course, what matters uh, above all else is for people to believe that Jesus was God. And that's, so those are the answers we come up with. And in all of those ways, none of those are really strong strongly connected to what it means to say that Jesus's life was something that proclaimed the good news. There's another part that's missing in this story that stands out to me, and that is, what about Israel? 
So in the, in the passage that I just shared in 2 Timothy, there was a line in part of articulating that God raised Jesus from the dead that said Jesus was descended from David. That means something. That means that Jesus was a part of Israel's story and that for Paul and the early Christians, you can't tell the story about Jesus without also talking about where he fits into Israel's story. There's a reason that we kicked off this series when Pastor Kevin talked about the, the good news is bad news for who? For some people. And we talked about the context that, that Jesus entered into and the backgrounds that Jesus entered into for him to be able to say that he was proclaiming the good news, that he was the anointed one. What does all of that mean? For, for people who were articulating the gospel in the New Testament, the early followers of Jesus, they couldn't do it without thinking of their entire story leading up to that point. There's also a, a, another problem that comes up with uh, forgetting about Israel. It raises the question, just like with, you know, why do the Gospels have so much about Jesus' life? This raises the question, why the Old Testament? The entire thing. What happens to it when you're looking at Jesus proclaiming the good news or Jesus being the good news? And again, you end up with some of these explanations. Well, the Old Testament is there for good moral examples or bad moral examples or things like that. That's what it's there for. Then it almost always either subtly or explicitly states that, well, now that Jesus is here, the church has replaced Israel, in some way saying that they had their chance, and the Old Testament records what came of their chance, and now it's the church's turn, and then the Old Testament doesn't feature very prominently in people's reflection of what the gospel is. And then it also ends up being a, a way of saying that basically Israel is an object lesson in failure, because it shows that they were not able to succeed in the way that Jesus was. A big problem that also comes up when you can articulate the gospel without mentioning Israel at all you end up with this issue of, uh, you know, thinking about what, the, what is the central question that the Bible is trying to answer. It's, it's supposed to answer, how can I, as a sinner, be with God? And a lot of times, the way a lot of Christians think about Israel's role in that is to say, oh, the Old Testament shows how Jews tried to earn their salvation because they were self-righteous. They thought that they could follow all the rules and they could make it happen, but the Old Testament clearly shows that they can't. But Jesus could, and he is perfect. And for anybody who's not self-righteous, you can find your salvation in him. This is extremely problematic. And that, this kind of attitude towards what you think Jews believed back then or what the Old Testament about is about has contributed to a lot of animosity by Christians towards Jews. As if the Jews at the whole, you know, during their entire story and relationship with God were always thinking, uh, you know, today I'm going to do everything right and then God will love me. In this like some kind of bizarre, um, you know, self-esteem problem where it was just never working out for them that it was perfect. No, that's not true. And Jesus and the New Testament writers never make that kind of criticism of Israel or the Jewish people. That's, that is an attitude that I think it would be easier to get rid of if we actually knew how Israel fit into the story of the good news and what the good news is proclaiming. There's another way that I think that the story of Israel has to be a part of Jesus' story of good news. We use phrases to describe Jesus like son of God. And sometimes in the New Testament, you see a lot of times either Jesus called himself son of man or other people called him son of man. 
I have heard over time a lot of people say that, oh yeah, when Jesus uses those different terms, sometimes you, you know, he calls himself son of God, and that's to emphasize his divinity. Sometimes he calls himself son of man, and that's to emphasize his humanity. That's not accurate at all. That's actually, that would be the answer of somebody who is not looking for the biblical context for where those words actually come from. The phrase son of God, by the time you get to Jesus' day and run in Jesus' circles in the, in the first century, came to signify something very special about, about the anointed one through whom Israel would seek restoration. It's about a king, a king like David. It's about an agent empowered by God to uniquely do God's will on earth. That's what Son of God is about. Son of Man is an image that comes from the book of Daniel in an apocalyptic vision about the figure through whom God is going to restore his people and sum up the resurrection of his people. That's what Son of Man comes from. You cannot understand terms like Son of Man or the title Son of God, which is so central to how so many of us understand Jesus. You can't understand that without understanding Israel's story. This is... a. Uh, um, a passage that I think captures a lot of what is actually the content of the gospel. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians saying, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Notice there, according to the scriptures, twice. Paul has to say according to the scriptures in order for his audience to make sense of this gospel message that he heard. If, you, if you're not presenting the gospel without any reference to the scriptures that preceded Jesus, you are missing something critical to the story. Another part that's missing from this is what about the earth? So, Pastor Danielle will give a lesson, uh, I think soon in, in this series, about how the good news relates to a good creation. Because when you think that the gospel is all about you and how you can be saved, you miss out on basically everything else that's going on besides you. Because if God is really about life and about bringing dead things back to life and bringing new life, and if Jesus embodied that in the way he lived his life and in the resurrection— and if Jesus really is Lord of everything, then maybe you're not the only thing God is trying to save. But if we articulate the gospel as, as about you being saved, then there is no place in that story for what God is doing with the whole earth. Perhaps salvation is broader and more cosmic than the way we often talk about it with our friends. So when you think about what it's like, the challenge of trying to bring in all of these facets of the gospel and avoid some of the clutter or things that maybe aren't part of the gospel or aren't central to the gospel, I think it can be challenging to see what it looks like. Like, what does it actually look like to articulate the gospel well? Or in practice, what does it look like to not articulate it well? And what can we learn from it? So in order to, uh, to work through that, I wanted to share a clip uh, from a rap. Um, for all of you. Now, this, is, uh, this uh, clip is going to be from an artist called Lecrae, who I love very, very much. He operates in the, in the world of Christian hip-hop and Christian rap. And uh, this will be um, a one-minute video. And I, want, I do want to say beforehand that I, I do absolutely love Lecrae, and our, our family does too. When, um, you know, for, for our son, Justice, in terms of Jesus' music, it's Lecrae and Kakua. 
That, that's who it is at the top of the list. And uh, some of you have even heard Justice Singh Lecrae uh, in this building before. And um, when, uh, the, you know, not, not long ago, Dave from Kakua was uh, saying that that was going to be it for him for a while coming here. And so we actually had to have a talk with Justice and let him down easy to, you know, explain to him, you know, they're, they're not going to be uh, coming back every week. Sure enough, two weeks later, we came back. And as we were walking into the building, Justice thought he heard Kakua playing worship music. And I said, no, Justice, remember we told you they're, they're not going to be back for a while. And it was. Dave. He was back for, for an ad hoc reason. So, so much for managing Justice's expectations. Now he lives in a world in which Kakua could come back anytime <laughs> and, uh, and he'll, he'll love it. The, the reason that I wanted to preface it with how much respect I have not only for Lecrae and the genre is because I'm going to raise some questions about what Lecrae says in this rap. And, uh, and I don't want it at all to deter you from the genre or from him as an artist because uh, he does awesome work. And, uh, and so does that whole genre. But um, so, so here, let's, let's listen to this. And then um, I'm going to ask you, uh, or I'm going to raise a couple questions about it. Um, so just rap? Okay. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I can't offer you nothing, but your care and kindness keeps coming. And your love is so unconditional, I get butterflies in my stomach. I got the old me in the rear view, got a new me, got a clear view. I was so dead, I couldn't hear you. Too deep to sin to come near you, but you drew me in. Clean me up, take me home, beam me up. Before you do, just let me tell the truth and let these folks know that I done seen your love and it's everlasting, infinite. It goes on and on, you can't measure it, you can't quench his love, you can't separate us from the love of God, there's no estimate. My faith looked the same. My frame ain't rearranged, but I'm changed. I promise I ain't the same. Your love's so deep, you suffered and took pain. Died on the cross to give us a new name. Nothing like I seen before. I got a beam and glow. I was low down and dirty, but you clean me, Lord. You adopted me. You keep rocking me. I'ma tell the world and ain't nobody stopping me. It was beautiful. And I know some of you are thinking, what kind of monster has any objections with the amazing thing that he just said? And that's, that's a fair uh, objection to have. I actually, I love this excerpt. It's actually um, a part of a, a fuller song called Tell the World. I highly recommend that you listen to it. So my problem is actually not with anything he says in the actual video itself. Here is the title of the video. This is how it's framed. It's Lecrae raps the gospel in one minute. And this is how this video is shared. It's to say that if you had one minute to explain the gospel or present it, what would you do or what would you say? And this is how he answers the question. And this, uh, this video is posted and featured prominently on Desiring God Ministries, which is part of the uh, evangelical, prominent American evangelical John Piper's ministries. There's a lot of overlap between John Piper's fan base and Lecrae's fan base. So this is, the, this is kind of a shared approach towards the gospel that, that they all have or that people have uh, running in those circles. If this, if what you heard was an answer to the question, you know, can you explain the gospel to me in one minute? Can you see why maybe that's not the right answer to the question that we've been talking about? Because what does Lecrae talk about in that one minute? All things that are beautiful. He talks about how he felt convicted as a sinner, how far he felt from God's greatness, he talks about what Jesus did for him and how Jesus took his sins for him and took that punishment for him. He talks about how wonderful it is and how amazing he feels to be able to have that kind of salvation and that sense of, of security in God. And he talks about how because of how grateful he is, there's nothing that can stop him from sharing that news with other people. All of those things are great, but all of those things are about him. 
It's about what the gospel has done for him. It's about what the gospel, uh, what, what it demands of him, what it causes him to do. Again, all of those things are great, but if you make that the gospel rather than the benefits of the gospel, you start distorting the story and you start missing things that are important because in his one-minute rap about the gospel, he did not mention the resurrection which is central. He did not mention anything about Jesus's life. He didn't mention anything about the cosmic destiny of the earth. He didn't mention anything about Israel. And I know some of you might be thinking, isn't that a little too complicated to include in a one-minute rap? And my answer is no. You don't understand how good these people are at what they do. This genre, I have seen people in Lecrae's circle rap an entire song defending the amillennial interpretation of the book of Revelation. They are clearly up for the task in explaining the gospel in one minute in beautiful prose in the way that it needs to be explained. This is not a one-off thing. This is actually how a lot of people in those circles think of the gospel. So another example is in a lot of it, you know, in these uh, Christian hip-hop circles, a, f- a famous logo or branding is this 116. Or uh, as the, the you're branding on the T-shirt, uh, I am unashamed, or as I thought when I first read it, Iamun Ashamed on, on that T-shirt. <laughs> but the, the reason that they... Uh, that this verse figures so prominently, 116 means Romans 116. And it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In those circles, a central articulation of the gospel is that it results in your salvation or the gospel even, like they would say, it even is your salvation. That's what the gospel is about. And they point to Romans 116 as, uh, as the, the key phrase that helps us understand the gospel. I actually think that using this passage as the centerpiece of what the gospel is, is off by just a few verses. Because this is how Paul actually opens the entire letter. Just a few verses earlier, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That to me is as clear of a statement of the gospel as Paul can get to start off a letter. This is how he frames the entire discussion about what the gospel is about in the book of Romans. Notice all of the beautiful central elements that it has, and it even sums it up, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it is. And it comes through resurrection. It comes through being a descendant of David. It comes through his life. It comes through the Holy Spirit and through power. That's how he frames it. So that a few verses later, when you see... Paul saying that the, the power of God, the power of the gospel results in salvation. You understand, okay, the central message of the gospel is about Jesus. The consequences of it or the benefits of it is salvation. But we should not confuse the two. Let's not make it about us. We have to keep the focus on it being about Jesus. Now, when, when we have struggles with articulating the gospel or understanding the gospel in a way that isn't self-centered, that kind of problem spills over not only into how we understand the gospel, but into how we explain the gospel or communicate the gospel to others. So the, the problem gets compounded. The gospel is not just about you, and the gospel is also preaching the gospel is not just about you either. 
You know, when it's all about how you can be saved, then your goal in preaching the gospel often becomes all about saving others from hell. Many of you may be familiar with this context. Either you, you, know, you have operated in that kind of context in the past, or you're aware of it, or you've d- discussed or dialogued with people in it. And, uh, I mean, I have heard uh, people say things like, my goal is to get to heaven and take whoever else I can with me. I've heard people articulate their mission of the gospel that way. I've heard people say that then if you question hell or, you know, what you think is the biblical understanding of hell, then you're actually beginning to question the gospel itself because saving people from hell is central to our understanding of the gospel. I've heard people say that if there weren't a hell that to save people from, why would anyone want to become a Christian in the first place? To which I want to say, because Jesus like, that's, that's how it works, right? If, you, if, if the major way that you think that, you know, the good news works is because it saves you from hell, and if it's not about Jesus, then all of a sudden when you start questioning, what are my precise benefits that I get from believing the gospel, then all of a sudden the value of the gospel is at stake. But if you center it on Jesus the whole time, you can spend the rest of your life working out what the implications of the gospel are for you, but you will fix your eyes on Jesus, and that'll be the story that you stick with the whole time. You see how it's very different when you kind of confuse the benefits of the gospel for the gospel itself. There's a, an author and a beautiful rabble-rouser in the name of Jesus called Shane Claiborne who articulated it well for me when he said, I didn't become a Christian because I was afraid of hell. I became a Christian because God is good. And I think that is the right approach to take. And if we take an approach to the gospel that centers on Jesus and not on us, I think you can actually live that out. And you can actually, you can actually make the gospel compelling to people without having to threaten hell upon them to make it happen. You know, when it's all about saving as many souls as possible and, and saving means people getting to believe that they're sinful and that they're in need of a savior, we create a market for the Romans road type lessons and discussions that we saw. And we create a market where people emphasize telling other people about their Christian faith as much as they can and as often as they can. That raises some controversies, um, not just within Christianity or within Christians in America, but on a national level. So some of you may recognize these images. This is uh, a former uh, NFL quarterback, Tim Tebow. The picture with the, um, the uh, scripture verses on his black patches is from when he was a college football player um, at the University of Florida. And uh, just, he was a phenomenal uh, football player, uh, college football player. And um, he rose to prominence in the NFL um, when he was playing for the Denver Broncos. And you remember back in 2011, the phenomenon of T-Boeing. 2011 was back when it was a simpler time in the, in the early part of this decade. And, uh, you know, T-Boeing, for those of you who don't know, is uh, after, either before the game or after a big play. Tim Tebow would kneel, like you see in the picture, and, and he would pray. And that was his way of publicly proclaiming his Christian faith on what he believed was a grand stage. This is something that he wanted to communicate. Now, this caused a lot of controversy, both among Christians and non-Christians. Some people saw this as too preachy. Some people saw it as uh, bad preaching, that it's just not a compelling way to present the gospel. A lot of people thought of it as, you know, as pushy. Uh, some people loved it. They thought it was great that, that such a talented man could, could uh, publicly acknowledge God for, for what he was doing. Um, there, uh, there, you know, I think 
many of you may have fallen on different sides or even within yourself felt ambivalent about how to feel when Tim Tebow was doing that and when Tebowing became a thing. I personally am more of a, more of a Brother Wardell, Stephen Curry, the second uh, way of proclaiming, uh, thanking God when you play. This is, this is our uh, Golden State Warriors uh, point guard, Steph Curry. He's, he's kind of known for every time, uh, after basically every time he makes a shot, taps his chest and points up to God. He says it's to keep him grounded and to, to remind him of God every time he makes it. We are, we are partial to, to this gesture over T-bowing. Uh, you can see it represented in our children. <laughs> So this is, uh, this is the first time we, were, we got a picture. This is the first time that both of our girls were able to sit up for a picture. And you can see JJ in that picture, thanking God like Brother Wardell does um, when, uh, you know, pro- proclaiming the gospel. So she has learned to, to proclaim the, the good news of, of her Christian faith the, the same way Curry does in that. But, you know, with, with all of that, it does, I mean, it does raise healthy questions about, well, so what, what, is, what is good proclaiming of the good news? What is, it, what, is it, what is a good way of talking about your, your faith when you have a, a broad audience? So another way, the, this, uh, the T-Boeing controversy or discussion upped it to a next level was when um, uh, another very prominent NFL quarterback at the time, and, and uh, still prominent today, uh, up till today, um, uh, up till a couple hours ago, um, you know, he, he was uh, like in the height of Tebowing, he was asked, hey, what do you think about, you know, uh, Tim Tebow and all of these other players um, who, who show their faith like this? Because they knew that this is another extremely successful NFL quarterback who came from a very, like, deeply serious Christian background. And they asked him, like, what do you think about that? And the, the gist of his quote that I, that I wanted to focus on now is that he talks about how, you know, there are things that work for other people, but for him, he prefers the, the way of St. Francis of Assisi, where it says, preach, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. And so uh, a couple things that, that I have to point out to caveat it. One is St. Francis never said that. That's a quote falsely attributed to him. It's commonly believed, you know, it's okay. Uh, but that's, that's not material to the, the, the point that, e- that even Aaron Rodgers was making when he said this. Another thing to point out is that I don't think that either when Aaron Rodgers said this, if you read the quote in context, or the quote from its original context is saying that you can actually preach the gospel without using words, like without saying words. I think it's just making, it's, it's uh, provoking a thought as a matter of contrast to say that maybe we should think a lot and maybe a lot more about how our actions might contribute towards the good news that we're proclaiming. And maybe it's not all about, or maybe it's not even mostly about, the words that you say to other people. Um, this, th- you know, thinking about the, this tension between proclaiming the gospel, um, you know, is it good words that you say, or is it uh, good works that you do? Um, you know, I, I, I will acknowledge that, that um, you know, it, there's no easy answer to trying to strike that balance. Um, in a lot of what we would call conservative evangelical circles, um, there's sometimes um, a concession to say that, yes, good works are a, an important part of proclaiming the good news. But usually when that's said, what they're saying is that the, the value of good works is to make the good words or the good news about Jesus more appealing. 
In other words, the reason that we do good things for other people is to make the gospel more persuasive to them when it comes time for you to preach the gospel to them. In that sense, I know that they don't intend it this way, but for a lot of non-Christians, the way they're hearing is that, so you're saying the good works that you do are buttering me up so that I'm more open to it when you want to tell me that I'm going to hell and that Jesus is the only way I can be saved. That's how a lot of times people articulate like a priority that goes between, you know, good, good news and good works. But then on the other side, there's a, a lot of circles within what, what we often call liberal Christianity, where the, the good news can almost be reduced to whatever pet social justice issue you happen to care about at the moment. Um, one of my favorite bloggers, Rachel Held Evans, um, once did a post in which she, she articulated the ways in which she felt both um, at home and out of place in both conservative and liberal Christian circles. And in the part that was uh, talking about the, um, the, you know, how she feels uh, not at home in some liberal Christian circles, she said that, um, I believe that the good news is about more than just being a good person. And I think that's fair. I think that we do need to avoid that temptation. I think some of us are so burned from the Romans road approach, and we're so sensitive about how many of our friends who don't believe in Jesus might react and the baggage that they carry with them, that the experiences they've had with perhaps with people who've preached the Romans road to them before, that we sometimes shy away altogether from saying anything about Jesus. And we convince ourselves that, that, you know, we're doing it right because we're a good person around that person. And I think that we're missing something whole. We're missing a, a part of the whole when we look at it that way as well. There's a balance that's hard to strike, but I think the New Testament writers and the gospel writers provide us with a really good way at least to start, at least to see how they were doing it in their own context in the first century. So these passages are, they're uh, bookends and part of the opening chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And I call them bookends because you see that these two verses are several chapters apart, but they're saying exactly the same thing, basically, almost word for word. They're saying that Jesus went about uh, preaching the good news, proclaiming the good news, and he went about healing the sick. That's what, that's what he was doing. The reason that they're considered bookends is because if you look at the content, so what's going on in the chapters in between those two bookends is you have chapters 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and then chapters 8 and 9, which is descriptions of the things that Jesus did, healing people from demon oppression and from sickness. So you realize when you look at the flow of Matthew across these chapters that what Matthew is doing is that if you wondered, what does it look like? to go around proclaiming the good news? And what does it look like to go around healing people while you proclaim the good news? Those middle chapters about what Jesus is doing is basically articulating that. So the Sermon on the Mount, read as part of these bookends, that is part of Jesus's message of proclaiming the good news. Those, those are, you know, those the Beatitudes, those blessings, those declarations about the way that the world really is. That's part of the good news that Jesus went around proclaiming from town to town. And for Jesus, it was inseparable for him to be able to proclaim the good news and also offer release from oppression to the people he encountered. Paul echoes this very sentiment. When he carries the gospel into new areas, this is how he does it. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul too would say the gospel, proclaiming it, is not just about words. You do not proclaim the gospel only in the words that you say. You do it also in the actions that you do. 
there's a, a couple of ways that, that I think might be helpful then taking it all together to think about how, how we can articulate the gospel in a way that allows us to have uh, more fruitful discussions moving forward. So I think, uh, you know, N.T. Wright uh, talks about it really well where he says, this is a public announcement about something that has happened as a result of which the whole world is a different place. And everyone individually and corporately is invited to discover that for, the, discover that for themselves and live within the new world which has thereby been created. So this takes, I know it does not go down as smoothly as a Lecrae rap, but I think this is heading in a good direction of how to think about the gospel. The gospel, once you encounter Jesus, and this is how it worked for the early Christians, when they encountered the story of Jesus, it changed the entire way that they thought about the world. It's as if scales were removed from their eyes. And once you experience that for them, the way that they live their lives, is they can't go back to thinking about the world and looking at the world the way that they did before. It caused them to have to reevaluate where they thought the entire story of God had been headed up to that point. It caused them to reevaluate what God ultimately cares about and who God ultimately cares about. It caused them to reevaluate what they should say to their children about the world to come and future generations. It caused them to rethink what the ultimate destiny of the entire universe was. That's what the gospel did for them. And that's what they shared with others. And that's what we're called to do. I understand that there are huge challenges with thinking, you know, in the moment, um, you know, what should I say or what should I do? What can I say or do? What is the right balance of each of those that I can be uh, inoffensive and have Jesus be pleasant to the people that I'm talking to? Because Jesus is very beautiful and he's very awesome and I'm not. And so when I try to communicate him either through my words or my actions, I always feel like something is amiss. But that's okay because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. That is the message that you start with and that's the message that you end with. Proclaiming the gospel requires sensitivity. It requires you with one hand to read the New Testament and the Old Testament and to read what we call the gospels. And on the other hand, it requires you to read culture. What you'll see when we talk about the book of Acts uh, moving forward, we'll be doing a series together uh, at Spark um, on, on the book of Acts. And you'll get to look at what it looks like, what it looked like on the ground in the first century to move the gospel forward from Jerusalem to the remotest parts of the world. And we can look at what they did, what worked for them, what didn't, what did they adapt to their surrounding culture, what did they refuse to compromise on, and we can read from that and learn and say, okay, maybe here is something I can do in my culture today that might be like what they were doing back then. Those are the kinds of questions that we can approach together when we study Acts. It's also going to be the case, I think, if it's still the plan, that towards the end of this series on the good news, we'll have a discussion about what kingdom work looks like today. We can have a, you know, we'll have a discussion about what does it mean to live out the good news in, in our 21st century context. I think this, so in a lot of ways, my hope was that in this lesson, it's, uh, it kind of sets the tone for some things that you can think about moving forward with the rest of the series and other discussions that we have together as a community moving forward. Hopefully, that's, uh, that's what you can take away from it. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for bringing us together to be able to reflect on the good news that is Jesus. We're so grateful to be able to, to reflect on everything that he has done, not only for us, but for the universe, completely motivated uh, by your love and by his love for everything that he created. 
We are grateful that Jesus is Lord and that he's in charge and that we're not and that it's not about us. And we ask that you continuously bring us back to the full story that you are telling in the Bible and help us to always uh, fall back in love with Jesus and to always be searching to answer the real central question of the Bible. Who is Jesus? What does he care about? What is he like? Thank you so much for this opportunity for us to be able to discuss and reflect on the good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.